You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast. This podcast series aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters or brushing up on essential skills and tactics. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. In this episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast, I'm chatting with host of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, Dan Johnson, about how he uses terrain features to get on big bucks. Dan talks more about terrain features than almost anybody that I know, and every year he seems to be successful using terrain features to get on deer. He drops a lot of knowledge in this episode, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Joining me for today's episode of the How to Hunt Deer podcast is none other than the nine-fingered wander, Dan Johnson. What's going on, Dan? Not too much. Josh, how we doing, man? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Have you been uh, Have you been turkey hunting? Six hours. That was it. That's, Six hours. Uh, yeah, that is my turkey season in a nutshell, man. It's been um, between a my ten year anniversary and between a day of hospital visits for one of my sons. It uh, my and and then also trying to get them on the bus in the morning. One of the days, it was a it was a six hour turkey season, and that was about it. I'm gonna guess it was pretty underwhelming then. You know, I, I, I got close a couple times, not close enough to pull the trigger or anything like that, but, uh, the, uh, the one strutter was in a field already when I got there at nine in the morning, like quarter to nine, nine o'clock in the morning. And, uh, he was already in the field with like five hens. And so I tried my hardest to get close to him, but, uh, you know, with that many eyes, it makes it difficult. Then the next morning I went out and I had two toms gobbling uh on the roost they flew down and it sounded like they were working their way up to me and then they hit this like imaginary line like turkeys often do and they just didn't cross it and uh, i never did see them but i guessed them to be somewhere about that 50 60 yard range and uh they didn't cross and then they ended up going on another property and and that was it and then two days of crazy weather and bad luck and and that that was my turkey season Man, man, will will you be doing any more? Or are you calling it? Ah, man, there is a very slim chance I head down to Missouri for a uh, for a hunt 
but when I mean small, I mean like 1%. <laughs> so, okay. uh, I know, I don't want to say no to it yet. And then there's also a chance I can get the fourth season here in Iowa. I can get another tag for fourth season, but with my schedule and, you know, the kids and, and sports and activities, it doesn't seem very likely, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, I, I know that turkey hunting is not necessarily your favorite. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. I love doing it when it's that time of year, but yep. uh, I'm not making any plans to travel across the country for turkeys, you know, like I do for, for deer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, rounding out then and, and sort of turning the corner towards our conversation about deer today, I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about uh, terrain features. And yeah. the reason specifically I wanted to talk to you is because I think you harp on terrain features more than anybody else I know that hunts east of the Mississippi, or I guess, yeah. I guess east of, of being out west. You're not east of the Mississippi, but yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, in whitetail so, country. Yeah, that's right, yeah. in whitetail country. And, I mean, you, you, you are, are heavy on it to the point that I've heard you in other podcasts say uh, you would prefer hunting a solid terrain feature than hunting the freshest, hottest sign that you could find. Yeah. Is that right? At times, at times yeah. It's uh, – you know, and every property is different and every, everybody finds confidence in different methods of hunting. But when it comes to me and my approach and what I, where I'm trying to set, set up my tree stands and, and put, you know, my ambush point, I have always found success. And, you know, the last seven years found success in a in some kind of major terrain feature or just outside of a major terrain feature. So uh, that's just, you know, and when, when you get that success and you get that, uh, that feeling of, man, what I'm doing is right. You just keep going back to it every time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's, let's just start here then with a really basic question. Why are terrain features so important to you? Yeah, and this is one thing that I've had to learn throughout my several years of deer hunting and just observing deer in general. And and that is terrain features terrain features are so important because deer use terrain features, right? So when we find out a deer likes a certain area, we kind of have to sit back and and say, why does he like this certain area? Why does he come out in this low point of a field? Why does he travel this lay of land? Why does he hang, why do they hang out in these certain areas? And oftentimes there is some kind of feature, whether it's, you know, like here in Iowa, we have some really good draws, you know, up, sometimes out East, you hear the guys talk about the Appalachian Hills and, and how you can have some really steep terrain features there. Or down in the south, there's guys talking about uh, hunting pine plantations with just very subtle terrain features. And yep. the, the, the uh, I guess, the principle or the common theme there is whether it's a big terrain feature or a little terrain feature based off of the, the rest of the landscape, deer are hanging out in those areas. And, and that's why I personally like to focus on on those, uh, those changes in topography or vegetation or, or things like that. Yeah, that's great. So, so they're important to you because, Hey, the deer like them, right? Mm -hmm. 
So Fact. what are some of the, what are some of the more significant terrain features that, that you, um, kind of key in on maybe the, the ones that, that play a bigger role in your mind. And then can you explain a little bit about, um, what, you know, define your terms because I, I hear, uh, names for terrain features like saddles oftentimes or something like that thrown around with maybe, uh, some cloudiness as regard to, or in regard to what they actually are. Yeah. And you, you don't, uh, don't hear me use saddles too much, uh, no, the term saddle no. too much. Um, and, and maybe it's because I don't know what it is, or maybe it's because I don't hunt them. Uh, it could, it could, it could be either one of those, but for me, it really is just places where one terrain meets another terrain. And so it could go from flat to hilly, right? And then we have something in between in, in that, or which some people could call edge, right? We think of edge maybe on a vegeta- from a vegetation standpoint where it goes from open timber to really thick timber or a swamp meets a, a, a pine a stand or something like that. And what that does is it creates edge, and deer are uh, creatures of edge. So edge can be from a vegetation standpoint, but it can also be from a uh, terrain feature standpoint. So where these two changes in terrain meet creates some kind of edge, and they like to hang out in this in these transition areas. So, uh, so oftentimes you'll hear the term bedding area. Well. There's, there's bedding areas, there's travel corridors, there's uh, pinch points, there's staging areas. Uh, and yes, some of those, and those are important because usually flanking one of those sides is some kind of a terrain feature. And I'll, I'll just kind of start at the beginning with like a bedding area. A bedding area, for, and this is my experience, is typically a, a fairly thick stand of vegetation where these deer are laying down for the day with one end of that bedding area being higher than the other end. So wind blows over them and in some, and that could be a big terrain change uh, or a topography change or a very subtle change. And it can be subtle sometimes almost to where we won't even be able to see the difference. But if you back up 50 yards, you would be above the deer by a whole body size. You know what I mean? So, so, so we can look at that, that terrain feature, those terrain features, a bedding area. And then what happens is, uh, the deer say, okay, it's time to get up. It's time to go eat. And so they stand up and they, they walk out of their bedding area and they start going into what I like to call a, some kind of travel corridor. And really all that is, is that is an area from a bedding in between a bedding to a food source. Sometimes that can be long. Sometimes that can be very short. You know, and there's a whole bunch of different conversations around that. But generally, depending on wind direction, what they will do is they will walk this ridge or a low spot to get into the food source, whether that's an egg field or an oak stand or, you know, could just be a bunch of leaves on uh, some bushes that they're eating that day. But how they get to these points is by walking some kind of low stretch of land and having the wind come over that in some way. Um, sometimes that can be to their back. Sometimes that could be uh, quartering them, or sometimes it can even be full, like fully blowing into them. 
but they're 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 not skylining themselves in any way to to get you know so I would see them or another hunter or a, a predator. They're always they're using the terrain to mask themselves, yet having uh, confidence in the wind so that their nose can smell any type of threats that are coming or their eyes can see uh, uh, can can see danger. And so, so that usually works up into a, one of my favorite locations, and I'll, I'll call that a staging area. And a staging area is somewhere, beach, and, and I am from Iowa, so I usually hunt a big, uh, I'm, uh, food sources can be big chunks of ag ground, right? And yep. so they usually work themselves from a bedding area on a ridge or somewhere along that, that line. And then they work their way up a travel corridor into a staging area. And for me, a staging area is one of those locations where they will rub or they, they leave signs, they rub trees, they, they lay scrapes, they hang out in the pre-rut time frame uh, or that rut time frame. Bucks will be in those locations to scent check doe groups coming through to know, hey, do I need to chase them or not type of scenario. But usually that terrain feature or the like a, a staging area necessarily isn't a terrain feature, but a terrain feature is somewhere around there leading into a staging area before they head into some kind of main food source. And that's, that's probably one of my most hunted or favorite spots to hunt because it just slows deer movement down. They, they, they're, they're comfortable before they head out into the wide open and uh, it's off a, off of a field edge, and and uh, it's congregating. It's social. In those places, you really are able to watch deer behavior. And, and so then after the staging area, then we get into these food sources, right? And, and this doesn't really apply to all places, but if uh, a destination food source is a ag field, then typically ag fields are either terraced or they're 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 fairly flat. They're more wide open. And, you know, that's, and then they will find low spots to come out into these fields and find low spots to travel through these fields. And that's how they feel comfortable. Yeah. You were, I think you were one of the first that I heard talk a lot about, uh, bucks in particular entering fields in the low spot of the field. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I've and as I've thought back through my hunting career, and then as I've you know made observations since then, it, it's panned out like that. Can you go into why uh, why deer are attracted to those low lying areas, especially in the evenings as they're coming out? Yeah. So one we've already really talked about, and that's skylining. Right? They don't want to they don't want to skyline themselves. And if you've ever sat on a field edge before, and I'm sure you have. I know I have, and, and a lot of the listeners have. Um, all of a sudden a deer just pops out in the middle and you're like, man, I just had my head down for a minute. There's no way this deer ran all the way there. Well, there's a low <laughs> spot in the field that you just couldn't see. Okay. Yep. And so they come in now at the same time, let's just say this is an evening hunt and deer, these deer are coming out of this low spot as thermals cool, you know, as air cools, it finds the lowest spot and just continues to run downhill just like water. And oftentimes, depending on wind direction and um, thermal, like a ther thermal scenario, that is where all this air is pooling. So it's beneficial for them to 
not get skylined, but smell a lot of what is in this field and check it out before they go into it. Yeah. So if I had to, to take Dan Johnson and I said, Dan, I'm going to make you pick one terrain feature for the entire season. You can't hunt any other. You've got to pick one. And I, I know a lot of your hunting concentrate, you hunt, you concentrate your hunting quite a bit around the rut. Um, you know, it's when you take a couple weeks off every year. Right. So uh, if you had to pick one terrain feature, what would it be? And what would be the things that sort of make that stand out to you? Yeah. Um, so this year I killed my deer, I would say on a, a travel corridor leading up to a food source. Okay. Um, deer would just take this, this little curve and I, I found success there this year, but throughout the years, if I'm going to say, if I'm just going to take a, a, a scientific approach or a statistical approach to that question and say where I have had the most encounter with mature bucks throughout the years, it's going to be in some form of staging area in a terrain feature, like a, a, a draw that leads up to a, a, a draw that leads up into a, uh, a field. And before that field, there's this real thick area where the deer, again, they slow down, they leave their sign. They, they, the bucks are able to uh, scent check doe groups that maybe work their way through. And it's just a place for deer to hang out. I would have to say that uh, uh, staging areas are by far my favorite places to hunt. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, one of my favorite staging areas is just connected to a bedding area. So it, it goes bedding, staging, big ag field. And that's because that bedding is so good. It's so thick back there. There's not, that's more of a river bottom stand location and not into a lot of the terrain. So it is a flatter environment, but they, they come out of this real thick, nasty area and then they just, it's in kind of a little open timber, but they observe the open ag field before they get into into it, and it just kind of gives them an idea of what's in there. They can scent check it properly before exposing themselves. It is a low part of that field, and so, and, and that's where they leave a lot of the sign is yeah. in that area. And it just when you when you've done something so many times, it's just it just becomes a no brainer at that point. Yep. For sure. For sure. What, what may make, so I've got a, I've got a specific instance in mind, right? I want to, I want to, I want to get a little bit of what would Dan do, right? Yep. Uh, I've got a property that I like to hunt. I spend most of my time on it. It's got some big ag, ag fields out to uh, both the South and to the East. Okay. Um, there are nice, uh, what I would consider sort of those staging areas uh, both of which have some different features leading from bedding to these these nicer staging areas. When I look at the two, um, the deer seem to prefer using one of them during the day. And this other staging area, the deer really do stage in there, and they spend a lot of time in there, but it's not typically until after dark. And yep. then they're not, they're not making it into the ag field until well after dark, you know, 9, 10 p.m., so what are the, what are some of the things that would make a specific staging area stand out to you? Because the, the markers are obvious, right? Like you get off the ag field, you get into an area where it's just like, man, the deer aren't bedding here. 
the trails all lead to here and there's sign everywhere. Right. Right. Like there's rubs and scrapes and deer poop and all kinds of stuff. So you can be pretty sure that that's a staging area. What makes one staging area stand out as opposed to another? Uh, just daylight movement. I mean, obviously you can't hunt deer in the dark. So yep. Yep. If you, and the only reason you will know that is trail camera data or you go in there and hunt it several times and nothing shows up, but sign is fresh sign is still there. Right. So they're either doing it on their way back in the mornings or they're doing it after dark. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Once you've hunted it a couple times and let's just say your access route is good and you get into a, um, a location and let's just even say that you're hunting a fresh scrape. You're over top of a fresh scrape that looks like it may have been hit the night before or the, the morning before within the last 24 hours. Right. It doesn't, it, it shouldn't. I mean, it, it did for me for a while. Like, Oh man, I, I got to go hunt a place where the deer are, are around in daylight hours. And so that, that would, that would make me move to the other staging area and hunt it as well to get as much information. Now, let's just say I'm after a specific deer, like it's one buck that I want to shoot and he's coming through that staging area after dark. Well, as the season progresses, I would be slowly working my way down that ridge to check daylight movement. And so maybe there is a, there's a terrain feature uh, further down that ridge system or further down that trail, wherever these deer are coming from, where they're, maybe they're staging in a different spot leading up to that. So it, just because, you know, there may, there may be places where deer are slowing down and causing them, maybe there's an oak, a big oak tree or an oak stand in this area. And before, in between the, the ag field and the bedding area, there's a couple oak trees. Well, they're going to stop and they're going to eat any, they're opportunistic feeders. They're going to eat whatever's on the ground there. Maybe there's some lush vegetation in there as well. And so they're going to be taking their time to get to that, that food source as opposed to, let's say, no oak trees or no food between their bedding and the, the ag field or the, the main food source that could be a food plot or whatever. And so they're going to walk a little faster. They're not going to be walking and slowing down and grazing basically on their way there. So I would slowly be working my way down the whatever trail or whatever terrain into back into the property, which would allow me to hopefully see additional deer movement during the day. The only risk is, is that, once the deeper you go in, the deeper you have to come out of. And so you, once you get into an area, you don't want to be bumping deer out. So you have to really pay attention to your, your access route in, but also your exit route out to make sure your scent or you personally aren't bumping deer that have already gotten past you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And I, I want to kind of come back to something you sort of alluded to a little bit there. Um, one thing that I have noticed and, and we've talked before, and I primarily hunt public land here, uh, here in Wisconsin. So it, it gets a fair amount of pressure. It's not, uh, you know, some other places that just, that do get, get more, but I've noticed deer, um, at least in a couple of places here 
they are betting way, way back off of the ag fields. And I have found like multiple staging locations. And um, it seems like the deer kind of get up out of their bedding area, begin the journey toward the ag field and stage up just outside of the bedding area, then travel a bit more, get right up close to the ag field, do some more sort of milling about before coming out into the ag field. Has that, have you seen that as well? Have you noticed that? Absolutely. Absolutely. The deer, the deer aren't stupid. I mean, they, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of evolution have led them to be a cautious creature. And so if pressure, if they're, if let's just say a is betting, B is food source and in between there is pressure in some way, shape or form. And all of a sudden there's this big surge in the morning of pressure and then it trickles out and then there's another big surge of pressure in the afternoon and then it, it all comes out at the same time, right? They're going to learn how to avoid that pressure to get to wherever they want to go. And sometimes that can be not moving, uh, you know, maybe heading, heading a, uh, uh, let's just say it's a morning hunt. And they're coming off of a food source, and then they'll they'll slowly work their way through an area. And a guy, let's say it's ten o'clock in the morning, and the guy's like, "Well, I got to get out of here." He gets down. Then they go by at that time, you know, or a trail or whatever the scenario might be. And then they they walk by and they go to their main bedding area. Well, they sit there all day. They uh, they get up. They go to over to a ridge and they hang out there. And then a guy gets down out of his tree stand and walks back at night. Then they go the rest of the way and maybe stage up. They wait for the trucks to leave a parking area or something like that or whatever the case may be. They're not dumb, right? They know how to live in this terrain. So the only way to really beat that is to find out what is causing that and access through certain terrain features to come up completely maybe behind them or on the opposite side of where all the pressure is. And I've killed a couple deer over the years uh, because I've been flanking pressure. So I, I, I don't know, man, but, but to, to answer your question, 100% yes, multiple staging areas, uh, and, and they know where the pressure is coming from. And just like any, any animal, if you're conditioned enough, they're not, they, they know. They know that, hey, I'm going to slow down here a little bit. I'm going to wait for this pressure to leave, and then, and then I'm out of here. Yeah, I, I, I really started paying attention to that over the last probably two seasons. And, uh, yeah, it was just because I, I was seeing, you know, I had always thought before movement from bed to feed being very linear, and then, you know, they hold up just off the ag field or wherever, hold up just off the food plot or hold up at the oaks, um, and then go out into the field once it gets dark. I never really thought much about, you know, they're going to pop out of their bedding area an hour before daylight and spend 30 minutes milling around just outside of the bedding area. Right. You know, and sort of at, at this initial staging point before they move on uh, heading for the next. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So as, as we're thinking about uh, staging areas and a lot of the times, especially those staging areas that are closer to food sources that are going to be a little bit easier to access, there's a little bit less risk of, of bumping bedded deer when we're, when we're going into them in the afternoons, how are you going to, um, focus on your, your wind and thermals, 
to make sure that you're staying undetected because it can get real tricky with some of these terrain features and with different different features coming together. Yeah, it's tough. Not gonna lie, it's tough, especially when Wimmel, uh, Wimmels, <laughs> when it, especially when um, wind direction and thermals are fighting each other, and we start to get swirls, and, and, and terrain can have an impact on how wind either goes up or down a draw, or, or wind hits it, and it just like swirls and, and causes chaos. For me, man, it's just about observation, and I, I might be the wrong person to ask on this, because, dude, I am really aggressive, and I've had to learn this throughout the years of how aggressive to be with my stand location and how wind, how deer move through these terrain features and also what wind does. So I can, I can cut a wind really hard. And when I mean cut a wind, I mean the deer are coming at me and the wind's coming at them. And this is the age old saying, you know, your tree stand location needs to be where um, you're almost getting busted. Right. And, yep. and so the yep. deer is putting, the wind is putting the deer in the best position, but you're, you're trumping that just by a little bit. And so it's, I'm not the, I'm not the right person to ask that because I am so aggressive. Now, when I started becoming more aggressive, I would pretty much choose an area and I would say, okay, the deer are going to come from this area just because of historical data or trail cam data or me sitting in a specific tree stand multiple times, it allowed me to observe how deer are moving. And then I would wait for a, uh, a direction that would really blow any direction except for where the deer are, are coming from. And sometimes that means that, man, if deer get by me, there's a chance I'm getting busted or I get caught. Uh, or, you know, uh, but they have to walk through a shooting lane before that happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, yeah. so, so when it comes to a terrain, the terrain feature side of that, I'm using access routes, you know, going, walking a low point or walking a fence line or uh, edge thickness to avoid where the deer are coming from and, and put myself in a position where the wind is almost blowing to where they're coming from or even even a simpler scenario would be wind just blowing any direction except towards them whether that could be you know 180 degrees away from them could be blowing 90 degrees north or south if you feel they're coming from the west whatever yeah but the the general wisdom would be that that risky move also has some some pretty big reward yeah you know kind of like you alluded to yeah and that's correct in the grand scheme of things, or if you're going to try that, get ready to lose because, yeah. and you have, because I, I still lose every single year by playing the wind that aggressive. Um, and I've lost more than I've won, let's just say throughout the years. Mm. But as you start to figure it out and as you start to figure out especially properties that you can you hunt every single year. I know I have a couple properties that I know on a morning hunt on a south wind. If I'm if I'm just off the top a little bit, man, they won't they will not ever know I'm there because of the thermals 
because of the south, the wind blowing over the entire terrain as it slopes down to the north. Man, I have a couple spots that it took me years to figure out the best tree to put my stand in. But once you get in there, it's locked tight. Yeah, yeah. I, I You know, it, it's. I, I'm glad you brought that up. I've got uh, a, a spot that I kind of worked at for a couple of years as well, and I really got it dialed in this past fall. And it's one of those spots that if there's going to be any kind of sun, like unless it's going to be super overcast and drizzly, I know I can get into this spot. And as soon as the sun comes up, I'm bulletproof yeah. with my wind. Yep. I'm just not going to get busted. Yep. Yep. Um, Absolutely. But it, but it takes a lot of work. And I, and I still, to this day, I have no clue why. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't make, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I don't, I don't know why it is like that, but Talking about these kind of, you know, on the one hand, you got bulletproof spots, but then on the other hand, there are other spots that, you know, man, you're going to get busted every time you go in there. So are there, are there terrain features or are there, are there, you know, maybe specifically topography that you're going to just outright avoid because it presents so many problems? Yeah. So just for me, just like deer don't like to get skylined, you should never skyline yourself. And that's more, that's never been more, uh, important than let's say out in a Western state, like hunting deer in Nebraska, um, or, or in South Dakota or things like that, right. Where, where vision is also a huge, uh, you know, tool for the deer. Like in, in Iowa, there's, there's some times where I, due to the vegetation, that is, that's my concealment, right. Also using the some of the terrain features, but then flipping it, right? So if the deer are going to use a specific terrain feature on a, on a, on, let's just say the wind's coming over the, out of the north, uh, the deer are probably going to use the south side of any terrain feature to catch the air coming over top of it. Well, to access that point, I might walk on the north side of that to a, to a point where I think the deer are going to come and then J hook into a stand location. Um, potentially, you know, skylining myself for just a little bit, but with the hopes of they're far enough away, uh, that they won't see me until it's too late. Basically, you know, I'll, I'll, I will already have been in the tree by that point, um, or walking the lowest possible point and then walking up to, to that all, all making sure that the wind isn't going back to where they think you think they're betting. And so, um, sometimes the deer may even cross your path before I just talked about this on another podcast. They may cross your ground scent, but like, I'm not a huge, like I don't get too worried about ground scent. I don't feel like deer are, especially the places that I hunt. I don't feel like deer are just have their nose to the ground, worrying about every little scent that comes to the ground. I, I just, I've, I haven't seen it happen throughout the years. And so I don't typically worry about it, but, um, when it comes to knowing or not, if it's, if it's a good place to hunt or if it's a bad place to hunt based off certain, you know, like you said, the sun's out versus the sun's not out. Is it raining? Is it not raining? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is the vegetation on, on the trees? Is it uh, winter time? All these things have an impact of how air moves through the timber and, and that even the terrain, right? I mean, that, that has a big impact on how deer use the terrain. Uh, and a lot of times what I've found is how there is this, there's a main trail 
but it's a floating trail because as let's just say thick vegetation meets open timber and then as the year goes on all this vegetation comes off and it softens that edge the deer the deer tend to soften their their trails as well so they may not walk right on a main trail when it's easier for them to access uh you know to this to the low low terrain or high terrain it it becomes softer yeah yeah you just mentioned something that that i want to just sort of highlight a little bit because i've noticed the same thing too with the the issue of ground scent um you know a lot of people really harp on ground scent don't want the, the deer to get your ground scent and that kind of thing and I think this general principle applies to pretty much wherever you're hunting. You got to know your place, right? Like you're yeah. saying, you haven't seen the deer react super negatively to ground scent where you are. Um, my favorite spot to hunt here in, in Southern Wisconsin. Uh, I don't see that either. It's an area that is commonly hiked by all sorts of people. So there are people coming through there all, all the time, you know, so ground scent is not a, not a big concern. But I think the same thing comes if we're, if we're just talking about terrain features, deer, uh, deer do deer things, obviously across the board, but some places, the deer on that, on a specific property are going to use terrain features differently than they might on other pieces of property, you know, and who knows what all informs that it could just be the, the mood of the deer herd on your specific place, but there's, there's no substitute for knowing your property and knowing how the deer on your property like to use it. Yep. And when you, you know, just to reiterate here, uh, your property doesn't mean property you own or have permission to hunt. It can be public. It can be whatever swath of land you have access to hunt. And the way you find that out is through scouting and identifying these terrain features and identifying uh, indicators like, you know, heavy trails or like pinch points or uh, staging areas or, or whatever. And, Nothing beats time in the tree stand. Yep, that's right. That's right. Well, on that point of, of observation and time in the tree stand and scouting and all of that stuff, when you're thinking through terrain features and you're trying to you're trying to piece this apart, right? Like, where's the right ambush point? Um, are is there one specific uh, kind that gives you better intel either when it comes to scouting or when it comes to hanging your trail cameras? Man, you're not you're not going to get the answer to that question immediately. <laughs> That's know? all right. I've got time. I've got time. Yeah. No. And what I mean by that is you're not going to get that answer in one week. Yep. You're not going to get that answer potentially even in a year. You have to put your trail cameras in the right spot. Sometimes it t- that takes you know those need to be moved uh, in or out, back and forth, whatever, and, and just really sitting in a tree and saying, man, I need to, I need to be over in that tree or I need to be back or I need to be forward or I need to be down or I need to be up or wherever it, nothing beats time in the woods. And so like there's, I could give you a thousand examples of throughout the years going into a place setting up a tree stand, either getting busted or not getting within shooting range and then having to adjust my tree stand location to get closer to the shooting area or like, uh, to like get a different shot opportunity or put myself out of what I guess you would call the red zone of getting busted. Yep. So it, it, it's a, it's a big two way street there that you have to play with in order to get 
you know, into that one position that keeps you out of trouble, but puts you in shot and shooting range. Yep. For sure. For sure. Well, well, Dan, I've, I've got one final question for you and uh, this is your opportunity to impart your great wisdom <laughs> to us. Right. And... I don't have any of that. <laughs> well, do your best anyway. Make something, okay, okay. make something up. It's okay if it's a lie, right? Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what would be, all right. So, you know, there are guys this time of year, I think the diehard whitetail hunter, he's looking at maps, he's doing his e-scouting, he's putting boots on the ground, he's paying attention while he's out in the turkey woods, he's thinking about where he's going to hang his, tra- his trail cameras come this summer. Um, he's doing a lot of planning. What is the number one piece of advice that you would give to a guy that says, I want to up my uh, terrain feature game come this coming season. Maybe they're good at a couple of other things. Maybe they've they've been all about the fresh hot sign or whatever over the last couple of years, but they're saying, I, I want to hone in on on terrain features this year and, and get to where I really uh, understand and have it dialed in. Uh, what would be your number yeah. one piece of advice to them? My number one piece of advice would be to be patient <laughs> because, mm. um, like I said, you can't, you can't really go in and figure it out. I mean, cause you could, I could, could I could go into a, a piece of property or a, a terrain feature that looks just like another terrain feature that I've hunted in the past. And the wind will do something completely different because the ridge is longer or there's more vegetation in there or um, the next ridge is bigger or the next ridge is smaller. And so, wind is always coming from someplace and always going to another place. And there's all these little things that happen in between that disrupt it. And and just like water, right? If you throw a big rock into a small Creek, it's going to go around, right? If you take that Creek out or that rock out, it's going to go right down the middle. It's going to take the path of least resistance in some cases. In some cases, if wind is very, uh, you know, like uh, here's a perfect example on a, a still lake where the water temperature is warmer than the uh, air temperature. You're going to see the thermals rise, like maybe even the fog rise off of that, off of that uh, lake. It does the same thing in the timber in certain scenarios too. So when it comes to things like that, look for, uh, if you want to take your terrain game to the next level, Look for similarities, but be prepared to make minor adjustments mm. in in those in those terrain features. And just a, uh, a side note on that is we can probably all, unless you're brand new, we can all go into an area and say, "Hey, this is a draw. This is a food source." Like if we have the basic understanding of how deer operate. And there's still things that I, I'm learning every single year. This is a travel corridor. This is a pinch point. This is a bedding area. Once we, once we can identify those on a larger scale, then start to look for the subtleties, like things like what I call a spur ridge. And that would be a very, very, very subtle, small ridge on the side of a main ridge. And deer love to use uh, places like that. Mm. And uh, look for very small terrain features within a bigger terrain feature. And I know that it's hard to define something by using that in its, in its definition, but 
find a smaller terrain feature, a very subtle change, and it could just be a bump on the on the landscape in a, in a bigger terrain feature. And uh, just like I mentioned on that spur ridge, that is a perfect uh, example of you know find places to have a shot opportunity in that smaller little area. And uh, I have a feeling that if you do it right and not afraid to be patient and adjust your, your stand setup, you'll, you'll have more encounters. Yeah, man, that's really good. That those, those, uh, secondary smaller little, uh, terrain features within the larger one, man, that's the difference oftentimes between a 20 yard shot and watching that buck walk by at 50 yards. Yep. The spot within the spot. That's right. That's right. Well, Dan, what do you got coming up with the uh, nine finger Chronicles podcast? Just more of the same, man. More talking same. to a whole bunch of yeah, I mean, talking to a whole bunch of people who love to hunt. I mean, yeah. really, that's what it is. Talking to guys who are passionate about the outdoors, similar to myself, similar to you. Um, getting some cool stories, having a lot of fun, but at the same time, getting that education as well. So uh, that's what I'm doing. Awesome, man. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Josh. Good luck this season, man. You too, brother. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find more outdoor-themed podcasts at sportsmansnation.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you download your podcasts.